this worst case economic scenario where you had a whole bunch of folks looking for work and a whole bunch of jobs available, but there just wasn't a match between the skills these folks had and the jobs that were available. And I think the recession from 2007 to 2009 masked that for a while because people stayed in jobs from the baby boom generation longer than they otherwise would have. Their you know, retirement plans got upended. But here we are today facing exactly this scenario, except with a pandemic that's causing what people are calling, you know, well, great retirement, I would say, um, but also great resignation. Welcome back, listeners to College Cast. We've got a very special guest on the podcast today, Linda Franklin, president and CEO of one of the largest advocacy organizations for college institutions. Colleges Ontario. This week we're talking with Linda about Ontario's labor market crisis, up and coming careers for college students, and how innovative college programs can boost your employability and career potential. Whether you're not sure about career options post graduation, thinking about returning to school, or just wanting to boost your employability in Ontario's job market, this conversation with Linda has something for everyone. It's a fantastic chat, one of my favorites so far, so let's not waste any time and dive right into our conversation with Linda Franklin. Okay, welcome back listeners to another episode of College Cast. This week, we're very fortunate to have our special guest today, Linda Franklin, President and CEO from Colleges Ontario. Going to join us for a conversation on non-degree programs and micro-credentials. So just a bit of background about Linda is that she has over 20 years of experience in the nonprofit, governmental, and corporate sectors, having worked with the Government of Ontario, the College of Physicians of Ontario, Enterprise Canada, the Wine Council of Ontario, and of course, most recently, Colleges Ontario. So when she joined Colleges Ontario in 2007, she led the organization to rebrand itself, kind of developing its marketing campaign towards the value of highlighting college education, bringing public attention to the impending skills shortage, and leading advocacy efforts to improve pathways for students. Today, she leads CEO in lobbying to allow colleges to deliver three-year degrees and reforms to apprenticeships so that more students will consider the skilled trades as a career option. On top of all that, uh, Linda is a writer, spokesperson, and keynote speaker, having written pieces for Evolution Online Newspaper, and has given uh, many keynote presentations, including at CSA's very own Advocacy Summit. So thanks very much, Linda, for joining us today. It's really good to have you on the podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me, Trevor. Thanks. Yeah. Um, One thing we can get into, we can zoom in a little bit about Colleges Ontario. I want to get a sense from your perspective, what Colleges Ontario is, for those who aren't aware, and what its role is in supporting Ontario's colleges. Sure. Well, first of all, we're the government relations and advocacy body for the 24 public colleges in Ontario. So my board is made up of the 24 presidents of our institutions. So, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we do obviously government advocacy, but you're right in your introduction. When I came on, one of the reasons I think I was hired is because I'd been in charge of a marketing campaign for Ontario Wine in my previous life. And there was a sense then that colleges either weren't well understood or weren't as appreciated as they needed to be. So over time, CO has taken on a much larger role in sort of generic marketing of the college system. And then a few years ago, 
we were chatting with the board governors who said to us, you know, we'd really like to be better prepared to do our work on the boards of the colleges. And a lot of the folks in the college system who were hoping to move up to leadership roles were at the same time saying to us, we really, we could use a little more education and information. So now we have a section of Colleges Ontario that's dedicated to board and leadership development. So a, a fairly major footprint in education now. Right. Yeah. And it's an interesting time, I think, for colleges. Of course, we've had the 2017 strike. We've had, the, of course, the pandemic that's impacted us now. But even going back into 2007, there's been a lot of change. And I think one of the issues that uh, has really kind of stood that time since you've been in this role is the labor shortage. We're talking about the labor shortage with the trade sector. Now, there was a recent article, I thought this was interesting, there was a recent article by CBC that came out uh, just earlier this month talking about this huge demand for skilled trades workers in terms of a uh, red hot housing market, which we've seen building and building for the past decade or so. And on top of that, having retired tradespeople leave the industry and creating this demand. Some of the research I was looking into with Build Canada even mentioned that uh, by decade's end, we're going to need 116,000 skilled workers. And roughly that would mean at least 800 workers per year would need to be skilled, hired and trained to sustain this demand. I was wondering just from your perspective, if you could talk about what you've seen with this labor shortage when it comes to the trades industry, and maybe we can also talk about what careers you'd see uh, being very important for students to look into if they're interested. Sure. Um, lots to unpack there. And, you know, this issue of the skill shortage has been with us forever. I mean, I've been here 14 years and in my first year, we had a guest speaker from London, England um, at our conference who was talking about the fact that because in Europe, those folks didn't go through a baby boom. So they didn't have this big boom generation that for a long time has filled up the labor market and, and would continue to do so for a few years. And because they were facing labor shortages earlier, they could give you a map of the world and tell you, you know, where are there gonna be excess people versus the available jobs and where are the opportunities for us to recruit and here's where we're going in the world. We hadn't even started thinking about that. But in about 2005, um, we asked uh, Rick Miner, who used to be the president of Seneca College, to take a look for us at what things in Canada were developing around labor shortages and, and what we needed to be thinking about as colleges. And he wrote this pretty seminal report called People Without Jobs, Jobs Without People. And what it basically talked about was this worst case economic scenario where you had a whole bunch of folks looking for work and a whole bunch of jobs available but there just wasn't a match between the skills these folks had and the jobs that were available. And I think the recession from 2007 to 2009 masked that for a while because people stayed in jobs from the baby boom generation longer than they otherwise would have. Their you know, retirement plans got upended. But here we are today facing exactly this scenario, except with a pandemic that's causing what people are calling, you know, well, great retirement, I would say, um, but also great resignation. People are just looking for different work-life balance or retiring early. So now we have this skill shortage really exacerbated by people just making life decisions coming out of the pandemic. So you're right to say it's particularly challenging in the trades. I mean, you know, if you are in downtown Toronto, you know, it sure doesn't look like we've had a recession in a pandemic because there are cranes everywhere, building stuff everywhere. There's 
the same can be true in many parts of Ontario outside of Toronto. I was in Ottawa on the weekend, same thing going on there. You've got shipbuilding going on in the eastern in the eastern provinces. You've got shipbuilding and other work going on in the western provinces. So we're in a pitched battle right across Canada and probably across the world for skilled tradespeople. And married to that, in our case in Ontario and, and most of Canada, is that the process to become an apprentice is so darn complicated. I mean, I had a three of my nephews go through for welding. Two of them just quit, didn't, just did a pre-welding program, got hired by companies and decided that's enough of that, off I go to work. My one nephew who stuck it out had to call me three times so that I could intervene with the ministry to try to figure out what his next step was because it's so unclear. So one of the things we clearly have to do is fix that. I mean, you know, if you were a student applying to college or university and you had to leap through so many hoops, you wouldn't stand for it. And somehow we've allowed our apprentices to stand for that. So we really need to fix that. And we also need to, I think part of that challenge is it creates another challenge, which is that parents and guidance counselors don't have the respect for the trades, don't have an understanding of them, don't realize what great job opportunities there are there. And so they actively argue against their sons and daughters who are interested in the trades from going down that route. So we have to, I think, also make parents aware that apprenticeship is part of the post-secondary system. And even though it doesn't look like it from an application and engagement and structure standpoint, it's equally as valuable and important as any other part of post-secondary. So I think there's a lot of challenge there around reforms to apprenticeship, Trevor, that we're gonna have to take on if we're really gonna get folks there. But beyond that, you know, when you look at the pandemic coming out of it, we've got huge shortages in healthcare professions, huge shortages in IT, just recently, last year, the OECD, OECD did a study of their 77 countries, and they asked people in kindergarten to about grade eight, and then another tranche up to grade 12, what do you want to be when you get out of school? What do you think you're going to be? And of course, what did they say? Doctor, lawyer, teacher, accountant, mostly professions now that you would say are not in enormous demand for more and more folks, and almost nobody talking about IT, technology, YouTubers, for goodness sake, you know, they don't have a sense in those early years when their attitudes are being formed about what they want to do of all these professions that are out there that don't feel as mainstream because their parents don't know about them as these old time professions that their parents do understand to be roots to good jobs. So I think we have a second challenge there, particularly as colleges, because we teach all these programs of helping students understand there are terrific career paths in a lot of places you may not normally look. Yeah, you raise a really good point there, Lynn, is that when it comes to an understanding of what potentials there are in the labor market when it comes to trades and other careers, there is that barrier when it comes to a respect and an understanding of these careers as important in themselves. Absolutely. Well, and I think, let me just add, I was going to just say it's particularly problematic now because of the way the world is changing. I had a lunch, well, the last time you could have lunch with people, two years ago, I had a lunch with somebody from government who was saying that his wife is a pharmacist and they are actively discouraging their daughter from following in her footsteps because their belief is artificial intelligence is going to take over their profession. So you'll go to a pharmacy dispensing machine who will read all of your health information and 
spit out the pills that you need, probably with more efficiency and, and less error than an actual person. Same seems to be true for general accounting tasks now. So, you know, even those traditional professions, I think, are changing in ways that people don't really recognize. Mm-hmm. And I almost wonder if this also touches in, in terms of the policy side of things. One thing that you've highlighted recently was the Ontario Minister of Labour's comments in his letter with the Toronto Sun, where he talked about supporting Ontario's workers, but made no mention of college's essential role in supplying the labour force with valuable, skilled, trained workers in these technological fields, these skilled trades. I wonder if you can talk about that a bit. Why is it so difficult for families and policymakers, decision makers to acknowledge these careers and and colleges in general as so essential? Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of our challenge, uh, the one that you raised specifically, is that about a year ago, training, which includes apprenticeship training, that was always under the umbrella of colleges and universities, moved over to labor, a ministry that really didn't have a line of sight on colleges up until then, but knew about unions because the labor movement, of course, is active with the Ministry of Labor in dealing with a whole bunch of their issues. So I think, you know, that old phrase, you know, if you have a hammer, everything, every problem looks like a nail. I, I think that's partly responsible for this because the labor ministry knew about unions. They knew about union training authorities, didn't know that the colleges deliver 85% of the training and the apprenticeship in, in school training. And were really critical to apprentices across a broad range of crafts, whereas labor unions tend to be focused their training on construction. So that's a learning curve, I think, that we are actively engaged in talking to the ministry about. So absolutely. And I think the other thing, you know, we're, we're in a unique situation, luckily, with this current government, because there's about 17 members of caucus that have either worked in a college, had their kids in college, or are college graduates. So we have a group of people who know more, vastly more about colleges than we're used to. Our current minister was faculty at Georgian College. So... It's so interesting to have conversations with her about colleges because she understands the background and the foundation immediately without us having to start back there. But normally, I mean, part of the challenge is that civil servants tend to be university graduates. And so they come to the table with a clear understanding of what universities do in their head and almost no understanding of colleges. That's not true, obviously, of the Ministry of Colleges and Universities, but it's probably true of most other ministries and governments. So we're always in learning mode with government. Yeah. And one of the things that I think gets dropped by the wayside is this the kind of innovation and the leadership that a lot of colleges have in terms of innovation. Some of the things we're, uh, we're seeing now, Canadores College has this uh, Seniors in the Forest program where they're engaging other communities to build those kind of networks and uh, that learning. We've got Centennial's EDU one-year sports uh, journalism program that actually had students, they brought them in and had them report on the Paralympics. I mean, there's a lot of innovation that's going on at these Mm -hmm. colleges that is really exciting to see. And it doesn't necessarily get noticed in that same way that I think maybe it should. Absolutely. I guess kind of on a more general level, what do you think it is that for colleges now, what is it that makes them kind of these hotbeds or these excellent Mm -hmm. centers for innovation? Well, you know, interestingly, I think it tracks back to the mandate that colleges were established with 50 odd years ago. So, you know, the vision of the government back then under John Robarts and Bill Davis to have structured something that is so relevant today is really miraculous. 
But that mandate piece is interesting because unlike any other public sector organization, built into our mandate is the need to think about economic development in our communities, the welfare of our communities, how we engage locally to support businesses that need to hire staff. So because of that, we are highly embedded with our local communities. And I think that's where innovation starts, right? What's going on in our local community? What companies are doing interesting things? What do they need us to do in terms of training to supply those interesting things? So, you know, we have program advisory committees that talk to all of our curriculum developers about what needs to change or be advanced in a, in a learning structure so that we are meeting the needs today, not just the needs that we identified 10 years ago when the curriculum was first developed. I think that helps a lot. And I think that engagement with local folks, I mean, we have um, colleges as well that have gaming setups and, you know, teach kids I think courses that most parents today would not understand. Right? My my son is a YouTuber. I mean, no clue at all from my perspective what that looks like. But there are career paths now that we would never have heard of ten years ago, and it's the job of colleges to make sure that they identify those as they are developing, and make sure that there's a labor supply to meet the needs. So I think that sort of forces us to be in the innovative space all the time. And then of course we do a whole lot of applied research entirely driven by local businesses that have an idea or a concept or need some development help, need some marketing help, whatever it is to get to market, to develop IP. And I think that um, line of sight on the most innovative things that our community businesses are doing also makes us more innovative. Mm -hmm. and, and there's something really that uh, stuck out to me when it comes to being community linked, identifying labor supply, looking at this applied research, as you mentioned, all these different avenues, these are different faucets. One really good example is I was looking through the uh, the annual report that CEO has for this uh, 2021 and 22 year. It highlighted something very interesting, which is the uh, the PSW program that recently came out this year. And for, for listeners who aren't aware, this is a a six-month accelerated program that tuition costs, learning expenses are covered. It started up in February 2021 with the goal to train 8,000 PSWs to work in long-term care homes and, and other facilities. And it was an overwhelming success. And a huge number of applications came in the next month after it was announced. And this is just one example that colleges have that this expanded programming, looking at what the needs are of the community, of the uh, labor sector in general, and coming up with a, a tangible solution that works not only for the labor sector, but for the students as well. I think this is a, a great example. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> that I'll tell you, we worked with government hand in glove on that because, you know, there was such a huge need and, and such an immediate need because of the pandemic. And I remember one point the government saying to us, we're going to be building the plane as we're flying it, which was just exactly what happened. But you know, all 20, you know, again, it's such a tribute to the colleges because they do work together as a system, almost as a team really well. So, you know, all of the vice presidents academic were developing the curriculum together, problem solving for each other. The vice presidents of student services were engaged. Our application center was involved trying to make sure we marketed this out into the communities. So it was a huge effort. And I'm really proud of the success of it. You're right. We trained 8,000 PSWs over the course of the summer in three, I think, tranches. 
and supplied a huge need in all sorts of communities as a result. So, you know, I, I think there's really good learning there about what's possible when you're faced with the need. Um, so the government's now talking to us about how we might do something similar to try to solve the problem of the nursing shortage that we're facing now and coming out of the pandemic. And as a result of, of that PSW work, we're also looking at things in the college system like hyperflex programming. So if you're mid-career and you can come to the college campus for programming sometimes, but sometimes you're working and sometimes you have to be home, then can your program be flexible enough that you can study where you need to study at the time you need to study there? Now, I, I would have said that two years ago, that was a decade off. And now I'm looking at, you know, these think tank reports that talk about, well, you know, when we come out of this, students will expect a more bespoke experience. It'll be more like music. They'll want it unbundled and in their time. And, you know, but I'm actually thinking that now that isn't as far off as maybe we thought because of what we've been able to do through the pandemic just by virtue of necessity. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the impact of the pandemic, but one of the challenges obviously is unemployment rates that uh, we've had to deal with, which at the peak was in the GTA 10.1% in January of this year. So these kind of challenges when it comes to unemployment for a lot of trained students that want to find careers and degree programs that fit for them, often they don't have the time or they want more flexible time or they, you know, it's, it's a big cost to go into a four-year degree program just to get into the labor market. So with these kind of demands, I think one of the really interesting innovations are micro-credentials. Yeah. And uh, I'm just wondering for listeners that aren't aware, if you could go over what micro-credentials look like and why they're important. Sure. Well, gosh knows what they actually look like, Trevor, because we're still having that discussion with government. I think they can be a whole lot of things. I think there are going to be some micro-credentials that are very specific to a company that needs its workforce trained in this particular program that's IT-based. And we've been doing a lot of that forever, right? Really vocational and continuing education training. So that's one aspect of what this looks like. It, you know, we had a, a conversation with Microsoft a couple of years ago where they said that they retrain their staff about every two or three weeks, which is terrifying in a way, but right, just shows you the, the pace of technological change. I think these new micro-credentials, what we're looking at there is how do you take a group of short-term training opportunities and find a way to ladder them together so that if you haven't completed your credential and you would like to, you can take a series of micro-credentials that connect to each other over time and build your credential, your degree, your diploma. Or alternatively, you can graduate with your first credential and then over time you can decide, well, you know what, I'd really like to add on to, I'd like to take my um, diploma and I'd like to move to a degree. Can we do that with micro-credentials? Because a lot of our three-year advanced diplomas already meet all of the requirements for degrees, except in some cases for a piece that's theoretical, um, breadth courses, we call them. So could you use micro-credentials to fill those gaps? And I'll tell you why this is really important is that you're right. So we've got the pandemic where we've had a very specific loss of jobs in particular sectors, tourism, hospitality, places like that. I'm sure that a lot of the applicants for PSW programs in our accelerated mode came from sectors where a whole lot of jobs had been lost. 
A few years ago, if you go back to 2007, when we had a recession, lots of folks lost their jobs then. But without that ability to train in those kinds of ways, the government had to put in place something called second career, which basically said, we'll pay you up to $17,000 a year over no more than two years to come back to school full time and learn another career. Well, that's it was really important program and really successful, but also really expensive and really time consuming for people that may well have had mortgages and kids and car loans. So if we could use micro credentials to help people retool or refocus their careers, if those careers no longer work for them or no longer work in the economy, then maybe we'll make these transitions a whole lot easier for people. And I think more and more as time goes on, people will be making a lot more transitions in their career. And we do have to figure out ways to make that more possible and more accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you raise a good point too with uh, making it more accessible and kind of on an institutional level, are you getting the sense that um, that colleges are finding ways of creating and sharing and collaborating together when it comes to micro-credentials? Absolutely. Well, colleges do this anyway, right? So. Um, I guess the best example of it in our system is probably our online um, consortium, Ontario Learn. And that model is really instructive because colleges don't compete with each other in this space. They try to collaborate. So if we were doing, Durham College decided that it wanted to do a business course and put it online for use by Ontario Learn, then they do that. But every other college has the right to en engage their students in that program that Durham developed and have their students, if you're a loyalist college, your students treat that as a loyalist credit. So we've always done that kind of thing. Um, a few years ago, the um, Dental Hygiene College came to us and said that they wanted to add a year to dental hygiene training in a very short window of time. So the colleges didn't one by one by one reimagine their dental hygiene curriculum. They worked together to reimagine it so that it could be done quickly. And I do think, you know, more and more that sense of efficiency where, you know, programs that have an awful lot of commonality, you don't have to start from the ground and develop them from scratch when you have 24 institutions who have varying degrees of knowledge around these programs and varying offerings. Why not work together? So it's one of the, the huge advantages that Colleges Ontario, I think, brings to the system is that we have all sorts of committees that run right across the college system, whether it's vice president committees or dean committees, heads of health committees, and they all collaborate together. They all share best practice. They all help each other answer tough problems. And I think it makes the system much more efficient and much more responsive. Yeah, and ideally that's what these are designed to do, to be flexible, to fit needs, and to be efficient, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I guess kind of wrapping things up, I think one of the most important things when it comes to these expanded learning programs, it can seem overwhelming for students and those even considering going back to school or considering a second career. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you have any recommendations or suggestions for those individuals who are reevaluating and, and maybe are a bit curious about micro-credentials. Well, you know, it's funny. I had once had a student say to me that it was very tough to apply to college because you really had to know what you wanted to do. And it, when you're 17 or 18, that's not always easy. Whereas it's maybe easier to go to university and study liberal arts because you know you were good at that in high school. So 
I, my recommendation is always to go into the college, sit down with a student advisor and talk through some options. If you already have a sense in your head of the kinds of things you'd like to do or the kinds of gaps you think you have in your knowledge in order to get you to the job you like. If you don't know any of that, then I often suggest go to our application site, OCAS, and just browse around. Have a look at, you know, type in a whole bunch of fields that you might be interested in. Look at the kinds of programs that are available. Take a deeper dive into ones that seem interesting and look at what courses you would be taking. And that can tell you a lot about what's available. But you're right. It's it's more and more challenging, I think. Lots and lots of opportunities and, and ideas that you can pursue. And I think the colleges have such a broad range of possibilities in an ever-moving economy that it really is, I think it's challenging, but it's also, I think, a little inspirational to go in and look at what might be available to you and reimagine how what your career might look like in, in ways that, you know, back to our lawyer and accountant conversation, you might never have thought about. Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, there's no... There's no one solution when it comes to finding what works for you, but there are these resources available, like you said, uh, with OCAS and with uh, taking the initiative yourself and following up on kind of what options are available to you outside of these well-established professions that traditionally have been chosen. Yeah. And the one thing, if I could just add a little plug for us is I, over the years, you know, when I started, parents often would say when we polled them, college is a great place to get a good job. My son or daughter is going to university, but everybody else should think about college. And today, none of that's true. Today, parents generally say to us, colleges, apprenticeship, those are great places to get a good job. I want my son or daughter to be happy, to have a career path, to be able to be embedded in the labor market in a sustainable way. And now, I mean, you really see that trend playing out. More and more, more students every year apply to college than university. And our largest growth area are students who have taken a university degree and then come back to college for additional education. So I think it's telling you that as time has gone on, applied education, hands-on learning has become more and more respected and more and more understood as a really good path. And I think that's a, a huge change for the better, particularly for students who have real interest in those areas and, and really want to pursue something like that. Absolutely. Some great tips there for our listeners. And I guess lastly, Linda, one thing I just wanted to uh, check in, for those that are interested about Colleges Ontario, those are interested about your work and initiatives, where can they go to learn more about what you do and, and what uh, what's going on with Colleges Ontario? They can type in on a browser, Colleges Ontario. It'll take you to our website and they can find a whole lot of information on the research work that we're doing, our advocacy positions right now, looking at credential reform to let colleges have a little bit more freedom to deliver the credentials that are needed in their local communities, particularly three-year degrees, which we can deliver four-year degrees right now, but for some odd reason, we can't deliver three-year degrees. So there's lots of information on our website there that can help them uh, get a first handle on what we do. And we're, of course, we're talking to student leaders all the time too. So that's another part of it. We work with the CSA. So student organizations are also good resources for folks because they do tend to be connected to us as well. Great. Well, I just want to say a, a big thank you for coming on our podcast, Linda. It's uh, been fantastic to hear about your perspectives with the uh, labor market and with uh, micro-credentials and kind of what you see Colleges Ontario doing and uh, the resources available to many students and uh, listeners. So thanks very much for coming on our podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I'm just delighted to be here. Great conversation. Thanks, Trevor. 
Well, that's a wrap on this week's episode. Thanks for joining us, listeners, for our conversation with Colleges Ontario President and CEO, Linda Franklin. For more information on how to connect with Linda, check the show notes for links to Colleges Ontario website and resources available to you. Next episode, we'll be having as our guest, Erkley Perone, CEO of Ignite at Humber College, on the podcast to talk about leadership and advocacy in student associations. So check in with us in two weeks time for that episode and we'll catch you next time on CollegeCast.